You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. The B-I-B-L-E. Does that's the book for me? You remember Wait, that song? Are you starting over from episode one? No, no, no. Just no, this one. this one. Okay. Which happens to be episode three. Okay. And did I kick it off? You kicked it off. Yep. Today on Another Name for Everything, we're going to be discussing the Bible. Now, Richard recently wrote a monograph called What Do We Do With the Bible? And in it, he helps us understand new ways that we can approach the sacred scriptures. If you grew up like I did as a more conservative evangelical or Protestant, then this conversation is going to be enormously helpful. Yeah, it really helped me think through my own relationship to the Bible over my entire life of beginning in Sunday school, like I know you did, where we had sword drills. Sword drills. (laughs) A Sunday school teacher would say a verse and then we'd have a little competition to see who could find it first and raise their Bible in the air and they would be the Bible winner. Um, And all the way to now, where my relationship with uh, the Bible is so different. It's within the light of the perennial tradition, but it's also the ability to read it at much more, at many more levels of depth of not only just the literal, but also also the symbolic. And um, we go through the whole seven layers with, with Richard mm-hmm. of ways that we can interact with the text. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it would look like to do a, a sword drill at that level, but I'm going to just kind of <laughs> let that one go, I think. <laughs> Paul, did you grow up doing devotionals? Yeah, devos. Devo, you call them devos? Yeah, I call them devos. That's weird. Well, devotional, if, if you didn't grow up evangelical, uh, devotionals were this, is like it was like our, our form of daily prayer. It was like our rosary, yeah. so to speak. And many of us grew up with this tradition where you would literally read the scripture in a very meditative, contemplative way every single day. And then you would, you know, pray or journal. And that was kind of how you kicked off your day. It was a way to center yourself um, and center and orient your day around God. And, you know, now that I think about it, like I am so glad that I grew up with that mm. rhythm and that discipline because I do think it has taught me the value of beginning my day in that kind of space. But I do know that for so many of us, it it's a little bit triggering. Like thinking about the Bible is a little bit triggering because in some of our traditions, it was so central and it was like so the only way that you could understand truth was at this very literal level that for many of us, it was just very constrictive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the gifts of what Richard, I think, has done for me personally is kind of blown the dust off the Bible with his own passion and love for scripture and the way it comes alive for what is it saying oh, yeah. about today. Right. And that is contagious like i feel like my relationship to scripture is just so much more alive and one of the things in particular is the way he talks about the jesus hermeneutic or how did jesus read scripture Mm -hmm. and what he highlights and what he leaves behind and you know what he seems to emphasize gives permission to me to also do the same which feels very dangerous to say out loud you know from coming from where i came from right Speaking of highlights, though, how much do you love Richard's Bible? Oh my goodness! It's like out. Of, he had it. He had it out on the table for just about every conversation right, in this right season. And you have to imagine. Maybe we'll take some pictures of it. But you have to imagine like this great giant old tome of a book, 
And you know when you can tell that somebody really loves the scriptures because they actually spend time in it daily and he has it like highlighted with like notes on the side and you know, he just, it's like he lives in the scriptures and the scriptures live in him. But I'm so grateful for the ways that he helps us understand that there can be so many different levels of approaching this. And I hope that you all find this as um, as liberating as we did, uh, as, as a way to reconcile ourselves to not just the scriptures, but our tradition as well. Like, how do we orient toward our whole tradition? Like, what, what of our tradition do we need to leave behind and what do we need to bring with us? Yeah. And I mean, just as you're talking, I was flipping through Richard's Bible. Every page is highlighted. Every page <laughs> is written in. And that just shows a lifetime of being in in the scripture in such a way where it, it's like you said, it's impacting him and it's changing the way that he's viewing reality. And I'm just so grateful to have that kind of example of how one can inter- interact with scripture in a very relational and very adult way. Yeah, Paul, I'm getting a little concerned. I think you should just put that Bible back on the table before you decide to stick it in your bag because I already called dibs on Richard's Bible, so I'm going to need that back. And it is covered in duct tape, which is delightful. (laughs) So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode on Another Name for Everything. Okay, Richard. So we used a phrase around here at the CAC that might be new to some listeners, although it pops up in your books here and there for sure, but that would be the perennial tradition. Can you say a bit about that? What do you mean by that phrase or those two words, perennial tradition, and what does that encompass for you? You know, the way I usually explain it, I don't know if it's the best way, but uh, you've heard it too many times. If it's true, it's got to be true everywhere all the time. (laughs) It can't just be limited cultural truth, American truth, Lutheran truth. Uh, Those are the little pop-ups. And what we try to do is uh, track, if you're a student of the perennial tradition, track the pop-ups, you know, and notice the similarities. And... uh, This word was used by philosophers called the perennial philosophy. What were the ideas that kept showing themselves in Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, again and again? And that became the big T tradition. Now, um, I don't, I I have really been shocked how few Christians, Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, have really been exposed to the Big T Mm. tradition. When it hit me was, we had a course in college called Intertestamental Literature. Uh, It must not influence me too much because I can't remember the names of the books, but it was a professor who had a PhD in Intertestamental Literature. And he just led us through all the books that were written in that period between the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. And he would point out this very thing, you know, well, this is similar to what the Jews are already saying. This is similar to what the Christians are going to say. And it gave me that wonderful sense of continuity. So when you start searching for continuity as opposed to proof texts, that's a totally different approach to the Bible. You know, where is the continuity? Where is 
This coming from, has it been said before, usually in different words, uh, the one you've heard me use, but it's still in my brain, is uh, in Exodus 14, 14, when uh, Yahweh says to Moses, uh, at the edge of the Red Sea, he's hesitating to go, and he says, you don't need to do anything. I'll do all the fighting for you. All you need to do is keep still. Mm. Now that's the beginning of the contemplative tradition. <laughs> Uh, that's the beginning of the grace tradition. Not, maybe not the beginning, but it's certainly a big dot in, in the Jewish scriptures. Once you have uh, charted that, even in your mind, in a good Bible course, it, it really helps you the rest of your life to determine what you pay attention to and what probably is not one of those dots. It's an aberration. It's an anomaly. It's a lovely story. And, and I'm not saying you throw it out, but you don't give it the importance that those that are putting an exclamation point by the, the dots, by the continuities. It's a wonderful self-correcting way to read philosophy, but religion too religious texts. And I, I know this scares a lot of people, but it leads you to recognize, like I did in the Bhagavad Gita, that the Bhagavad Gita, which I always thought was this pagan, ridiculous book, never having read it, of course, mm -hmm. uh, is about action and contemplation. Mm -hmm. The whole book, at a rather high level. <laughs> uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a part of the perennial tradition. It's not Jewish, it's not Christian, but it's inspired. And if you say it isn't, you're just being dishonest uh, about the big themes. So my very first set of uh, cassettes, which they were then, that I made in 1973, are called the Great Themes of Scripture. And those were translated into two small books. I realize as I look back, that was my obsession since the beginning. What are the great themes, you know? Mm -hmm. What are, uh, you know, and uh, all I've been doing since then is building on that. But that gave me the authority to talk the way I talk, which without thinking I'm a heretic or a, a, a new idea. If it's true, it's never new. I've never said that before. That's clever. <laughs> it isn't. It's been said before you. Yeah. It has to have been. Right. Because the Holy Spirit isn't exposing all truth everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. So I hope that gives you a feeling for it. But philosophers like Leibniz, Alan Watts, uh, who are the other ones? Forgive me, but use that phrase. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It opens, and part of what it does is it opens you up to relationships in other traditions instead of st staying strictly in just, your lane. Yes. Or see the constellation instead of just the individual stars. You're you're mapping that out in a relational mapping, way. That's a good word. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. That kind of seeing though makes so many people uncomfortable though. Most people, right? Because yeah. we feel more secure when we have a sense of what our borders are. Yeah. Like, wait, wait. Tell me what's Christian because 
you know, I need to kind of know, I need to feel safe. And the idea of the perennial tradition kind of punctures that container a little bit to recognize that God is expressing God's self mm-hmm. eternally in many ways. But, you know, a, a question that I'm, I'm wondering if you could answer for us is, where did this idea of orthodoxy come from? Mm-hmm. In other words, when did we start to feel like it, it, that we no. needed such clear boundaries? When we look at our founder, Jesus, we see someone who doesn't seem to be trying to doesn't start a religion <laughs> at all. Yeah, so I think it'd be helpful to understand how w- how that came to be and what the human relationship, the human influence on this tradition has been to create those strong orthodox borders. Lord, help me to say this well. Uh, It it certainly begins already in the second century. Who is holding the true teaching of Jesus? And of course, the the Greek word orthodox means right. Uh Who is right? Now, you and I have been trained to see that need to be right as an ego need, not a soul need. But I'm not saying it's a wrong need entirely. If you, if you don't start with order, if you start with total unorthodoxy, what everybody is saying is true, equally true, you probably would have even much bigger problems. Okay? You can't start with chaos. So I don't want to put down our ancestors for being concerned with orthodoxy. Uh, but... What it lacked was a proper humility, a proper humility around words, knowing words are always limited, knowing formulations are always cultural. And as much as I admire, um, I met an Orthodox couple yesterday, uh, many aspects of Eastern uh, Orthodoxy. I'm a little bit disappointed that they named themselves that. Uh, uh, then they got to live up to it, you understand? And, and they haven't lived up to it, in my opinion, any better than the Catholics have or the Protestants yeah. have. Because once I got out, now, I, I, of seminary training, I do admit that probably Catholics of all three groups have, if they want it, if they have good professors, greater access to the perennial larger tradition. Most Catholics don't want it or feel a need for it or have professors who themselves have been exposed to it. Uh, But the rest of us, Orthodox, have been, I'm afraid, uh, trapped in ethnicity. And, you know, we're Greek Orthodox, we're Romanian Orthodox, we're Russian Orthodox. And not to say Catholics weren't Italian Catholics, German Catholics. They sure were. Uh, But then Protestants have the harder time, usually, uh, getting in touch with the meaning of orthodoxy. Now, this is going to strike you as funny, but I remember (laughs) uh, the first time a Protestant called me a heretic. I said... I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, well, you can't say that. We say that about you. (laughs) You can't call a Catholic a heretic. But they said it with the same firmness. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Same for then, I wanted to say, forgive my arrogance, by what authority? <laughs> what authority do you call me a heretic? And so it wasn't right by what they had been trained. Um, yeah. And see, what, what Protestantism lacked was that connect the dots. Uh, they didn't realize that, that the shouts of, of Martin Luther Sola Scriptura, only scripture, is a classic dualistic phrase. Yeah. It set them up for, to pull themselves out of connect the dots and just find isolated scripture quotes, you know? Mm -hmm. And it left the individual believer, frankly, creating his own or her own orthodoxy. Yeah. So I, I hope I'm saying, it's delicate, that I, I, I believe in orthodoxy, I call it first order. And until you know the rules, you're not free to break the rules. Huh? So I agree with that in principle. But we've all claimed we were orthodox, orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, but we all had major blind spots, major. And that lack of humility around our own Catholicity, universality, perennial tradition is now doing us in, yeah. I think. And I think it's even more so in the evangelical world. Maybe that's just my own bias from growing up in that sphere. But the leap from evangelicalism to the, the perennial tradition, it felt very, very scary. Did it? And um, I remember reading like Thich Nhat Hanh in high school under... Really? Under, undercover, because I was worried, you know, what if someone mm -hmm. sees me reading? Tip not on in high school. Mm -hmm. And to think wow. about that now, like, it's laughable to think that I was, you know, on this, looking at this dangerous material, almost like a dirty magazine, you know, yes. or something like that, like, in my in the privacy of my own bedroom. Did you have a similar experience when you yeah, I mean, stepped beyond evangelicalism? I mean, Paul, if you're asking me if I was reading Thich Nhat Hanh in high school, the answer is no. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. But, you know, I do think um, that there's this zeal about we are the ones who have this right. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. The, the, desire, the desire to prove how right we are comes with this package of disproving and proving how wrong yeah, everyone else yes, is. Yes. And, um, you know, it fascinates me because it, it feels like the question that, that is underneath that is, how do I trust, un, with what authority do I trust yeah, that yeah. this is That's good. part of my tradition um, and you have you have a methodology about how how so. you understand how you come to these conclusions, and you call that the trilateral hermeneutic, which may be a new term for people if they haven't heard it before. And I wonder if you could unpack oh, okay. how how you teach that in the living school to help us understand. Okay, this is how we gain a sense of where these perspectives that mm. are in alignment with the perennial tradition come from. In the first 15 minutes, usually, uh, was it the first 15 minutes when you had, did it, Corey? Uh, I, I say, what I'm going I'm to have you this whole week to communicate to you the methodology of the living school. By what authority do I talk the way I talk? And by what authority are you going to be equipped to talk? And we have three correctives and that balance and regulate and encourage one another. 
and I call it the, the holy tricycle, all right? The holy tricycle moves forward with three solid wheels. And the front wheel is the one that's most shocking to people because it's the one that, in my opinion, was held the least accountable and therefore it was set loose to control all of us while not admitting it was driving us. And that is called personal experience, right? Mm -hmm. That how can you not filter scripture and tradition, those are the two back wheels, through anything else but your personal experience? Now, I don't mean personal necessarily in an individualistic way, but a, a cultural way. You have to see the word father, the way the word father is presented in your culture. Is it attractive or unattractive? You have to see it in terms of the way of your family. How can you not? Well, and once you say this to most people, so we, we, they get it. So we've learned to be a lot more honest. Make experience the front, but we are the first real generation that has the tools to critique that wheel too. Call it modern psychology, call it depth psychology, call it developmental psychology, call it the Enneagram, call it Myers-Briggs. Nobody really had those tools. Although you go back to the Desert Fathers and it's amazing how psychological they are. Right. <laughs> and go back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. I said that yesterday. Amazing how psychological he is. It just isn't clinical psychological language. So um, when we stopped respecting the human psyche, uh, uh, the phrase, I've forgotten my Latin now, this is one, another one of those Latin phrases we had to memorize. It was, nothing is in, in the intellect that doesn't come through the senses. Mm. Mm. Nothing is in the intellect that doesn't come through the senses. That was, again, and again, that's Thomas Aquinas, that's Duns Scotus, that's Bonaventure. That was just agreed upon wow. in, in the high medieval period, you know. Uh, it centers the body too. Which is yeah, it sure so does. Different than how we nothing think is that. in the intellect. Didn't come. I haven't quoted that much. Mm -hmm. God's inspiring us this morning. <laughs> 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 Old phrases are coming back. Because you're time. drinking, you're drinking <laughs> out of the Christ <laughs> mug, Richard. <laughs> That's right, the Christ cup. <laughs> Richard has a mug that has a big C on it. <laughs> uh, pull me back into it. What Through am the I not saying? Yes. Yeah. Oh, experience, yeah. So um, the uh, Catholic tradition overemphasized tradition, but in a very culturally limited way. I mean, the, the grand one that we have to admit is that we pretended we were the whole church, and after 1054, we were only half. That, by our own theology and history, we can't deny. And on our greater days, we'll have the patriarch and the pope standing together. But it took till the 20th century for that to happen. So we were already uh, half, and then we just kept having, 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 H-A-L-V, again and again and again. 
So we, we were right to emphasize tradition, but this builds on the previous question. We didn't emphasize the perennial tradition. Mm -hmm. We emphasized orthodoxy as the Catholic tradition. And now, let's say, when we'll have something like the presence of Jesus in the bread, we'll say, and the Orthodox also say, and the Protestants also say, and by the time you get to the end of that, you've got a much more balanced position. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my early education, it was just the Catholics say, mm -hmm. closed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't fair. That wasn't honest. Now, all those of you from the Protestant said, Scripture says. And, and they, it's amazing how much they say that to this day. It, because it's their only bandwidth of authority. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Scripture says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Just turn on TV, it's the Bible says. They really leave experience totally unaccountable. Don't, don't give it credibility, and so they end up being based in Mississippi. Because uh, they don't recognize that, that this is more deep south culture than it is anything Jesus ever said. Um, you know, another thing that struck us, I don't know if I've said, we always, not that we were followers of Jesus, even as well as, as most Protestant groups, but we always found you quoted Paul more than Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? I think so. That's think probably that's why three accurate. of you on the staff are named Paul. That's right. Like, that explains it. Paul, Paul, Paul. <laughs> he was, it was like he was the founder of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you put Paul without Jesus, you lose all the radicality. Mm -hmm. Now with Jesus, you find Paul's radicality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a surprise. But at any rate, you ill-defined... Scripture, we ill-defined tradition. Neither of us uh, held experience accountable. Our methodology was very poor. There it is. And I spent a whole week when the students come to the living school just dancing around those three wheels trying to explain them. Yeah. I wonder if to avoid the question that will come up from certain denominations of where does reason sit within that? Ooh, because that often is the, you know, it you see a hand does. shoot up in the classroom yes. asking that. Well, uh, mainly, as you know, the Wesleyans, yes. the uh, Methodists. And, you know, I really want to affirm what John Wesley was trying to do. Of course, he was post-enlightenment, I believe, yeah, and where reason had taken over. Yeah. And so he had to give it its due, or his good Methodists were not going to be taken seriously. What he really, in my opinion, unconsciously meant was a historical, critical approach to Scripture. <laughs> that was being reasonable, historical. But we didn't have historical, critical studies yet at that time. So he, uh, he spoke of the the quadrilateral, a four, four. Uh, he had a four-wheeler instead of your tricycle? <laughs> he had what? A four-wheeler instead a of four your tricycle. A four-wheeler. Well, I think it was a table, uh, four legs on, the, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, really. It's more static. <laughs> more, more static. Got yeah. it. Uh, but I'm not sure I'm right <laughs> on that. The four legs holding up the, the table were 
scripture, tradition, experience. He had enough sense to honor experience. But the fourth one was reason. Mm -hmm. And I can see why he had to do that and really move the, the argument forward. And you still find that, I have at least, in the reasonableness, the lack of complete emotionality and complete, forgive me, irrationality that seem to control some Christian groups mm -hmm. in Methodism. Mm -hmm. It makes them kinder, makes them less prone to judgment. Uh, but here's my response, why I didn't give it the weight of a wheel or a leg, all right? <laughs> I, I hope, in the living school at least, the way we're teaching experience, scripture and tradition is a rather rational way. A historical critical approach to scripture, a long-term approach to tradition. Let's read the whole history and not just French history or English history, you know. And um, let's use some good psychology in relationship to our experience. So I, I do honor reason. A lot of people would probably say too much. Mm. Uh, I, I maybe a Southern Baptist would sound like I'm, I'm being too rational. I don't know, I don't know. This hermeneutic I find to be so helpful, not just in discerning the authority of, of what is Christian, what is our tradition, but just like in general. In general. <laughs> in life. Thank you. <laughs> you know, yes. to, to be able to, to yeah. consider, how, how do I know this to be true, or how do I, how do I trust this? Yeah. And to align it first with the big T tradition and say, mm -hmm. all right, where do I see this in the traditions or the perennial tradition, as well as my own tradition of Christianity? Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. You know, that's scriptures right. for me also include the great body of mystical writings and, um, you know, poetry and work. I mean, it can, it can this, this concept, this lens that you have can be, it, it can be useful and expanded into everyday life. Really good. So allowing us to balance our experience with big T tradition and scripture, which I feel like is, is just the, the written word of wisdom through the yes, ages. Mm -hmm. Yes, Wisdom scriptures. Yeah. And you don't have to be afraid of reading other scriptures. Right. They might not be your order, from your perspective, they might be the disorder. Mm -hmm. But when you have the largeness of heart, and the largest of mine to admit that they're saying very often the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're ready to be a, a big teacher, mm -hmm. a, a great teacher. Mm -hmm. Now you, you've got to weigh that and measure that, recognize that the majority of students will not be ready for that, usually until the second half of life. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> they haven't got their order down yet. Mm -hmm. They're still affirming their order. Mm -hmm. But once you really understand order, what looks like disorder isn't. <laughs> yeah, it's a different formulation of order. Does that make sense? It does yeah, make yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. It does make sense. I, what I love about the tricycle too, there seems to be like an autocorrect, right? Like if you, if you yeah, take that's that, a good word. that metaphor very concretely, like if one of those wheels were blown out, if you had no tradition, then you're, you, know, you can't quite yeah. go you're kind of go you end up actually going in circles circles um so i just appreciate the way that metaphor continues to i don't know sink in and allow me to oh, to, to, to take that vehicle into every context like brie was saying that's it's, it's it holds such a big vision for how 
we can be in the world and relate to others. Well, and it also gives us the parameters by which we can trust our ongoing participation in this tradition, Mm. which is kind of a mystery to me that we spend so much time looking backward, you know, Mm. looking or considering what is orthodox as what has already been said. And yet we forget that we ourselves are participating in the living expression of it. Uh, And that that tricycle, it can help us discern as a collective, you know, Christianity's is also evolving. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's basically a collective art project. You're saying. <laughs> yes. It, it thrusts you, not in a bad way, in a good way, into the future because it creates a trajectory, you know, exactly. just like that's why we have two thirds of the Bible being the Old Testament, which mm-hmm. doesn't make it old anymore. It has created the runway on which Jesus can appear and be understood. And you take the Old Testament way, if Jesus came out of nowhere, out of no context, and said the things he said, I don't know that he could have been heard. Mm -hmm. I really don't know that he could have been heard. And he had to say them as a corrective to his own Jewish people. You're getting it, but you're missing it. You're getting it, but I'm still a Jew, he would invariably say, but... But you don't understand, uh, you know, the more important parts of the law. Uh, that was pretty clear. Yeah. So zooming in then on, on one of these wheels, the scriptures, you've recently written a monograph called What Do We Do With the Bible? Where you're exploring this topic of how do we approach yeah. scriptures in a way that is in balance with the big T tradition and experience. and. In that book, you talk about that even within Orthodox theologians, there's at least seven ways of interpreting or understanding scriptures. Oh, God, I should have looked them up. Why are oh, you we can asking? look at them. <laughs> why, <laughs> why are you asking me that? Uh, so, Richard, for today's cause, test. Because <laughs> they're so uncommon anymore. Well, uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to even just share here. Yeah, yeah. What if you'd be shared, um, you talk about that there's many different ways to interpret yes. Scripture. Maybe yeah. just share with us the different levels of, of how we can interpret Scripture. Well, let's start while he's looking for the <laughs> exact names. Uh, with the Jewish concept of Midrash. Uh, most people have at least heard the word. Maybe it wasn't explained for them. And you still will see it in the way uh, Jewish people use Scripture today. They will sit in a group and invariably as lay people, maybe the rabbi gives the lead, but the group will, well, I hear Abraham's response meaning this. I hear Abraham's response meaning that. No one is called a heretic normally. Uh, it, It unpackages the text and allows all of them to be true. Or as Ken Wilber says, once you get the perennial tradition, everybody is right. Everybody's Now, I know that sounds like fuzzy thinking, like relativism to people who are still building their box of order. I really respect that. But uh, we had this from the beginning. Uh, uh, I don't see Jesus saying this is the only way, except in regard to riches and money and pride. Uh, 
you know. But most other things, he, uh, yeah, here they are. It's on page five. The seven senses of scripture. The literal, which is the one that was not dominant in the early church. And you can check me out on that. The historical, just more or less reading it as an interesting history. And you love the stories and, and so forth. And there's people right now, that's their level of, you know, it's uh, biblical history, Bible history, allegorical. When you get to the mystical level, what blows open for you is the, I, oh, I have the symbolic distinguished from the allegorical. The allegorical is more limited than the symbolic. It makes every, remember at the end of the, um, uh, the, the, the seed and throwing out the seed. In one gospel, is it Matthew? Yes, Matthew 13, 13 the parable explained. When you explain, this means this, this means this, this means this. Uh, that's making it into an allegory. Uh, it's rather limiting because it doesn't leave the psyche, the soul, the heart, the mind free to let it also mean other things. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, in the other Gospels, uh, it's allegorized. It's just symbolic. Mm -hmm. Throwing out the seed. Now your mind figures out what the seed is, what the dirt is, and, and who the planter is. Um, the moral, which I think to this day, we're far too eager to run toward that Jesus just walked around making moral statements about what's right and what's wrong. If you're moralistically inclined in your denomination or by temperament, that's almost what you look for. Who's right and who's wrong morally? I remember in philosophy, we had a rather long few days of, of or weeks studying, can you have morality without ethics? Uh, no, can you have religion without ethics? And the conclusion that, as I remember, uh, that we largely came to studying the tradition was, uh, yes, religion is about union with God it will normally lead to ethical conclusions. But what happens is the ethical conclusions tend to dominate without divine union. <laughs> There's no love of God anymore. It's just premarital sex is wrong. So we emphasize uh, premarital sex being wrong among two people who really don't love God at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't this the way most of us were raised? Yeah. yeah. So that's the danger of moralistic. Eschatological, uh, what does this say about the final state of affairs? What does this say about where the world is going? What does this say about eternal life, eternal death? And for many people, this is an obsession. It's their first question in many, they'll take it to heaven and hell, which is why I address it in so many of my books, because I'd call it as much as 20% of Christians. All they want to know is who wins and who 
doesn't win yeah. <laughs> at the end. Uh, that we they were never given the big word eschatological. It is a rather big word. Uh, now the primordial gained traction after Carl Jung when he changed the word to archetypal. And just now for a generation, we've come to understand archetypal meanings, big symbols that are held inside your dreams, and the, even universally, African dreams and American dreams might operate out of the same archetypal imagery. Uh, but uh, primordial would, would have been the older word. Uh, means in Greek, ruling images. So the biggies, life, death, mother, father, uh, evil, good. Every, every psyche finds uh, ruling images for that. And they normally reveal themselves in the unconscious. But I do emphasize the word rule. You don't change people's archetypal images easily. Mm. Now, a true re that's why we emphasize contemplative prayer. So the unconscious is, is open to adjustment. <laughs> and even if I have a huge father wound, uh, I'm ready for that, that ruling image to be healed, transformed, changed, limited, expanded, whatever it might be. So I find archetypal very good. When I gave the, or created the men's rites of passage, we created six big boards, and for years I collected in every airport uh, postcards of archetypal images of men in every state, king, warrior, lover, magician, father, son, male, female. And who was it just? Just last week sent me a picture. They still use those. Mm. They're so raggedy now. They're falling apart. <laughs> but it's become a word that the men just, the archetype boards. Where are the archetype boards? Mm. And they like them. And we just tell the men during the silent time to come into the room quietly and to find what images fascinate you. Mm. What images can you cannot withdraw your eyes from. They're so either they make you angry or they make you infatuated. You know, those are your archetypes. Um, so the by well, let me give you a big example. In the book of Revelation, where, of course, we Catholics thought we understood it totally, we have the woman standing on the moon uh, blocking the sun. You see it in the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's the same image as uh, Revelations 12. But that, that's no longer Mary of Nazareth, although it is Mary of Nazareth. <laughs> it's archetypal now. Huh? It's a woman literally in the heavens, the divine feminine, the eternal feminine, the queen of heaven and earth. Uh, so if you give weight to all of those, as superficially as I mentioned them, you're the first ones ever to ask me to do this on recording. You're, you're going to let the Bible teach you in some very rich ways. When that really happened most to me was during my extended hermitages, where I just 
sometimes I, I'd have three Bibles sitting around me, just so people know I do love the Bible. Uh, <laughs> people are really just, wondering. It was the archetypal and the symbolic that just, oh my gosh, it's all there, it's there, you know. And it led to m many of the books I've written to this day because it was the big picture that was always true. I love the archetypal meaning, but which is really a, another form of the symbolic. Yeah. Okay, but it wouldn't emphasize so much the moral. Do you see? Mm -hmm. but there's nothing wrong with the moral, but don't start there and end there, or you've got ethics instead of religion. And many people think think religion and ethics are the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're not really. <laughs> Religion is about union, ethics is about perfection. Mm -hmm. And we get them confused all the time. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. And then when ethics get codified, then we find the the Pharisee kind of mentality yes, more so, yes. right? Which is antithetical to who Jesus was. Which very good. I'm thinking about you know these these seven different ways of interpreting Scripture and the way that you also so beautifully talked about how we wouldn't understand Jesus outside of his own That's Jewish right. tradition and heritage. Right. So how did Jesus read Scripture? <laughs> what? Can you, can you speak to what you've called the Jesus hermeneutic in your book uh, or your monograph, What Do We Do With the Bible? What does that mean? Yeah. I'm so glad uh, CAC was willing to publish this little book uh, because if we don't give people a good tool, I just see with consciousness emerging the way it's emerging, I see most people, once they get to the orange level of consciousness, the, the critical level, the rational level, completely throwing out the Bible. Many feminists just say that to me directly, I don't have time for that. It's so patriarchal, it's so violent, and you can't disagree with them, it is. So we recognize we better get a good hermeneutic. Now let me describe that, or define that in a very simplistic way probably. But your hermeneutic is your science of interpretation. What, is your, what are your criteria by which you interpret a text? And here's where fundamentalism uh, has its severe limitation. It usually never declares its hermeneutic. It just says, the Bible says. <laughs> And it's, of course, the pastor's interpretation. Uh, what else could it be? And uh, turn on TV. That's all the Bible says. The Bible says. Change to channel six, and the Bible says. And it's completely different, right? Because no one's declared their hermeneutic. 
So the one I feel is the only one that can really be helpful. For, now I'm saying only, forgive me for being dualistic, but it's so simple that it's hard to teach. You say, it can't be that easy, Richard, can it? And yet it appeals to both conservatives and liberals. Interpret the Bible, as, as you asked the question, the way Jesus did. And you know, I bet most of us were told uh, we interpret the Bible in the light of Jesus. Maybe that was the phrase that was used. Huh? The prophets in the light of Jesus, the exodus in the light of Jesus. They were half right, but they didn't take it to its logical conclusion. So when we say, interpret the Bible in the way of Jesus, let's look for the patterns again. And the patterns are that Jesus does not, check me out, go home and do three weeks of reading. He doesn't, he doesn't treat all scriptures equally. And so to say that every a line of the Bible is equally inspired is clearly not represented in the teaching of Jesus. The books that represent a, an earlier level of consciousness, we'd call the purple or the red level in spiral dynamics, like Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, most of Chronicles, well, that's more historical. Uh, he doesn't even quote. He only quotes Leviticus on its one positive line, love thy neighbor as thyself. So he's rather selective. We could call Jesus a cafeteria Christian. <laughs> <laughs> or a cafeteria Jew, I guess. He doesn't treat them all the same. Then once you recognize the truth of that, you have to almost go back again. What are the ones he honors? And what are the ones he actively opposes? And it's true. Those that are imperialistic, ritualistic, exclusionary, and violent. I'll center in on those four. He uh, actively opposes. And he admits therein is you killed all of the prophets, you know. He admits that his own tradition has those violent passages. And he's not going to back them up. He's not going to give them credibility. Passages that are inclusive, egalitarian. I mean, how can you read his parables and his stories? Why is he honoring the Samaritans, damn it? Why is he honoring the Syrophoenician woman, damn it? Why is he offering the pay, honoring the pagan centurion? He's the Roman imperialist. More often than not, the heroes of Jesus' stories and parables are non-Jews. That's called inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I dare you to disprove me on that. How did we miss the obvious? That, that we can't see that he was not into we're better than you are, even though he loves his Judaism. Mm -hmm. Talk about a non-dual thinker. You know, uh, salvation is from the Jews. Okay, well, and yet his actions seem to say, but not only. <laughs> yeah, not only. So he's inclusive, nonviolent, 
because we didn't connect those dots, the word nonviolence didn't appear till the last century. But read the Sermon on the Mount, it's overwhelmingly teaching on nonviolence. We couldn't see it because we had just come from reading, I, please forgive me, Jewish brothers and sisters, you know I'm not criticizing you. But a lot of passages in the Hebrew Scriptures do legitimate violence to an extreme degree. <laughs> Telling them to kill all the Canaanites, and, and good Jewish scholars admit this now, and see this now, as they develop the historical critical method and can say, we don't really think Yahweh said this. Mm -hmm. We just needed that legitimation of our most recent war, mm. sort of the way we do in America. But uh, you do see, talk about rational, that takes the ability for some rational thinking. Because uh, if you don't bring that to the text, I mean, it's almost tiring how much of the Old Testament is very violent, very violent. So much so that feminists say, I, don't, I think it's irredeemable. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to agree with them. I'm not going to give up on the Bible because it's all we have. But if you can follow the Jesus hermeneutic, honoring especially those four strands, um, you, you will, I tell the students, I don't know, maybe it's giving them too much uh, self-confidence, but I said, I would like to believe by the time you graduate from the school, you will have a template in your mind, just naturally, where you will see that text is moving us forward. Mm -hmm. You've got to know what your end point is, and your end point is the nonviolent risen universal Christ. That's your end point. Once you get that, you have your alpha and your omega. You know that it began good and therefore it has to end good. Uh, you don't need to be afraid of the violent texts anymore. But if you don't have that, if you allow every line to be its own standalone phrase, you basically create a, an eccentric, dangerous religion. Which we have, if, in, in, if among crazy people, forgive the word, among angry people. So I say, I think on the very second page or so, I'm not interested in changing the Bible. If you think I am, you're not, I'm interested in changing the reader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That conversion has to precede uh, scripture study. Mm -hmm. And you put the Bible in the hands of selfish people, angry people, violent people, they will always murder it. Mm. They will use it for imperial purposes. Mm. They will use it to punish uh, other people. It's a hammer. It's not a flashlight anymore. Mm. Oh, that's helpful. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. I also find it helpful when you talk about the fact that we know what the end point is, which is this inclusive universal Christ, redemptive yeah, image, concept, reality, then as we look through the scriptures, it's like we can see where and how that has been showing up over the ages. Yes, very good, and very good. 
almost like a clue, you know, weaving itself throughout yeah. time. But what it does for me is it allows me to hold the scriptures as I hold my own humanity with grace for Excellent. the growth. The common humanity now you're holding. Yeah. The, yes, go ahead. The, the, the process of evolution in which, yes, we have been through some chaotic times in which we, we justified violence. <laughs> Hopefully we're not there anymore, but we still are doing it. But, you know, That's it's right. that capacity to continue to look with that big deep time perspective. That's right. And, you know, the theme for the meditations this year has been the old and the new as you've been talking about, you know, our tradition. And I wonder if you could share the scripture that inspired that theme and why you think that teaching is helpful for us in this time. Mm -hmm. I think it's found only in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 13 is called the parabolic discourse by many, not perhaps by all. And at the very end of the parabolic discourse, uh, 13 verses 51, 52, this summary line is given. Have you understood all this? They said, yes. And he said to them, well then, every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, a disciple of the kingdom, all of us are learners, you understand, no one's got it already, is like a householder who brings out from his storeroom things both new and old. Talk about legitimation of what we now call liberal and conservative. Huh? He doesn't stand with one side and oh, what I'm calling order and disorder. And your storeroom is your uh, imaginarium of experience that you carry now. And go into that storeroom and in your dreams, in your prayer, in your journaling, find out where the great tradition was or your early uh, Christian experience was validated, was confirmed, and also where it was critiqued and needed to be deleted and replaced with something bigger. How could that not be true? And I was, how could a first grader understand these things in, in any kind of honest way. He, she has to understand it with the mind of a first grader. Huh? And if God is the mystery that we say God is, then it's complete, completely movement, movement, movement. Ah, ah. And it's a movement toward a bigger God, a more inclusive God, a less punitive God a more forgiving God. Um, in general, I mean, all these developmental psychologists say that thinking is most dualistic at the early stages, the purple-red levels, and almost totally non-dual at the yellow-turquoise-coral levels. Forgive me for referring to something, but this will intrigue some people to look it up. You just can't think that way anymore after you've lived life. It's not either or, it's both and. Hmm. Yeah. And the spirit of the old and new and how we relate and how we trust this process. You know, uh, a lot of folks look to you, Richard, as, as, a, as a wisdom teacher, as someone who is holding a flashlight that others can, mm. can, can follow and to guide them. What... <coughs> 
And part of I think what it, what you do so well is you always say uh, don't don't, don't take just my word don't for take it. my don't word take for my it. Word check for check it. me out on this. It's true. Go to prayer. Uh, all that. Yeah. What do you think is uh, our right relationship that we should have with our teachers, those who are holding mm. that flashlight no. and learning to trust our own experience. If they are really uh, a conduit of love and truth and hope and faith for you, then I think you, as Sirach says, you clearly owe them great gratitude and respect. Um, But then there has to be a point where those values are yours, they're internalized, and you still like the old lady or the old man, but you you move beyond this worshipful uh, because it isn't good for either of you. It isn't good for the master teacher to be worshipped uh, too much, too long. Uh, and Buddhism faces this same thing. They talk about it often more directly. Mm-hmm. You have to have the guru, but you have to, we would say in a psychological language, eventually withdraw your projection. But not too soon. <laughs> you got to know when. Because the arrogant young man or young woman wants to, oh, I know that. I've internalized that. Uh, They've got to let the the master teacher carry it for them. The trouble with that is you eventually see their clay feet, their faults, their blind spots. So it's tricky. I wonder if this isn't why you need a spiritual director, but then you can do the same with a spiritual director uh, to tell you it's time to leave the school or stop reading Rohr books or Henry Nouwen books or, you know, Meister Eckhart books for that matter. If you don't withdraw the projection, uh, you don't grow up. You remain a codependent child. And, and I've seen this in, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but a lot of people who quote me the most when I meet them, I said, I don't think you understand me. Uh, they're so certain they understand me. They so let me hold the projection, the hard work of integration, owning my shadow too, that I'm not perfect either, hasn't happened in them. And uh, this is not uncommon. I'll see it in almost every session of the Living School one or two students who have me on the highest pedestal, I want to say, oh, God. (laughs) Here it comes. (laughs) Here comes that Bree Stoner. (laughs) 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 Who doesn't even begin to get it. No, forget (laughs) it. What you're you're talking about, though, Richard, is... Is interesting in light of that same concern that we have with the scriptures. Like the the question that I feel underneath our anxiety about how do we look at the Bible is how do I trust that God can possibly manifest in me and in this time? That's right. As I am. That's right. (laughs) As we are. That's right. So the the trilateral hermeneutic, the tricycle that you named. 
I feel it can also help us when we think about our relationship to our teachers, right? Oh. Because they're part of that big no. T tradition, but no. oftentimes we put them on the on the driver's seat of our uh-huh. life instead of actually allowing God to manifest in the unique expression of Christ as this voice, this annoying Bree Stoner who asked you all the questions in the living school, mm-hmm. this, you know, this particular mm-hmm. <laughs> this particular package. And then allow that experience to translate into authority of trust. Mm -hmm. I trust that Christ can manifest as this, Mm -hmm. even though I'm imperfect, just like the the Bible's imperfect. Mm -hmm. It's uh, that's very good transference to the human situation, bringing theology to the level of psychology and anthropology, as I love to say. Mm -hmm. At the same trust that I try to offer to God has to be learned in the school of human relationships. Can I trust another human being? And don't tell me that you can mistrust everybody and trust God. That doesn't work. It isn't true. uh, Because mistrust is engraved in your soul. And God has to get through that filter of mistrust. And that codependency that we have, too, where it's like we'd rather project outward and worship God or worship Jesus as opposed to recognizing the Christ here in us, among right, us. we would. It's easier to do that. Because it can be a total fabrication with no correctives, no um, validations. I live on my... It's like young people don't love the girl or the boy yet. They love their idea of loving the girl. The romance. Uh, it's the same thing with God. You love the idea of being a good Christian or the idea of loving God because that's what your parents told you you should be in your pleasing mama and daddy. But now to actually love God is the best uh, judgment is how you love other people, really. Yeah. Well, in closing on this episode, as we've journeyed through looking at at the scriptures and also tradition, I wonder if you could answer the question, um, I wonder if you could answer for us, how does the universal Christ invite us into a new way of understanding the roles of scripture and tradition? Does it expand something greater? Does Does it bring us more fully into our lives? You know, the first thing that comes to mind, I don't know this uh, direct answer, I hope it somehow is, is the universal Christ, because it was almost universally not understood, shows us how, how even the big tradition can largely miss the point on some issues, like we did on nonviolence, huh? like we did on on misogyny and sexism. Uh, Once you have this big universal picture, you say, how come I never saw this before? That's what half the letters are telling me right now. Uh, They accept that it's scriptural, they accept that it's narrowly in tradition, mainly in the early period, whoever wrote Colossians and Ephesians, which is extraordinary of itself, uh, found rather rather clearly in the Celtic tradition, in the Franciscan tradition, but after that, not very much in all of our denominations. So it shows us all how wrong we can be. First letter of John, huh? 
about who was in the right. <laughs> we all missed it. You know, maybe this is a good way to join together how you started today. Orthodoxy isn't really having the full truth. It's telling you what to pay attention to. And we think this is worth paying attention to. And okay, we Catholics paid attention to some things. Uh, fundamentalists paid attention to some other things. And that became their orthodoxy. And orthodox paid attention to some other things. If we would have defined orthodoxy that way, that would have been closer to what Brian McLaren calls a generous orthodoxy. It's a beautiful word. Uh, yeah, there's still a place for it, but it to doesn't totally contain uh, this is truth inside of these words. Uh, it's just, let's pay attention to this. And that's good. Yeah. Well, that's good that we all do that. Well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. Hey, friends. One of the things I love about uh, your writing, Richard, is that you talk a lot about the perennial tradition, and you're informed by so much inner spiritual dialogue, which excites me because I have a background in comparative religious studies. But nonetheless, that leads me to ask the following question. What I wonder about is how when we look for the perennial philosophy uh, or archetypes or the hero journey, anonymous Christianity, Justin Martyr called Logos Spermaticus, right? How do we do that without accidentally being colonialist or reductionist or appropriationist in the way that we approach other people's religions. To put it in the most simple term, I worry sometimes that when we say things like, you know, all religions believe essentially the same thing, uh, we say that out loud, but unconsciously what we might be saying is all religions believe what I believe. And then what we end up doing is collapsing other religions and spiritual traditions into our own reducing them to like an exotic accessory. We co-opt other people's sacred symbols, precious practices um, to cobble together our own very fancy but very personal salvation project. Richard, you strike this balance really well. Can you help us? How do we celebrate the similarities between spiritual symbols and systems and religions while dignifying the differences? seems to me that the vitality might still be in the variance, even if a lot of the meaning is in the mystery behind the manifestation. Boy, you say it well. You named every one of the very real temptations and aberrations, all of which are highly possible. And I'm, I'm sure I've fallen into each one of them at different times. I'm glad you give me credit for not doing that. But uh, it's very hard not to. You know, the whole thing of appropriation is a double-edged sword. At one side, it's a compliment that I respect what this other group has come to, uh, but then when I too glibly make it my own or pull it, oh, this is just like what we always believed, uh, it, it levels it in a way that is unfair and, uh, and I could not possibly understand. We even did this a lot in our uh, well-known five-day event called the Men's Rites of Passage. I relied on a number of worldwide initiation rites, Native American, Aborigines, African, and who am I to do that? But uh, 
do, do you see how by naming it, we do name it when we do it, we are saying, these are some wise people. And why wouldn't they want us to draw upon it? Now, when it comes to we're going to make money off of it or we're not going to attribute it to you, that's a different thing. So um, it's a danger, and I think all you can do is name it as calmly as you did and then watch out that you don't, uh, well, you use the phrase anonymous Christian. That sounds so broad-minded from our side, from the side of a, a Jewish person or Hindu person, it feels like an insult. So it takes a high degree of non-egocentricity, non-narcissism, to be sensitive to this, but don't become so paranoid that you can't... I mean, the Jewish scriptures are are relying upon all kind of early Canaanite and Babylonian symbols and stories and and we all really are. I mean, I remember when I gave those rites of passage in Germany, uh, this German theologian came up to me the first time and he says, only you can get away with that. And I said, why? He said, because you're Catholic and you're used to paganism. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he's right uh -huh. that the first thousand years we... So many of the feast days and legendary stories of saints are not historically true. <laughs> but that's not the point. It's the meaning that they hold. So uh, we've been doing this since the beginning. I'm glad that our awareness is increasing. Uh, but if we try uh, to honor the group, to name the group as a wisdom tradition or part of the perennial tradition, uh, then I think we're, we're complimenting them, that I'm united with you in respect for this symbol or wording. And it's at the level of experience, at the heart. Very good. Because I, I also see that a lot of appropriation comes in our in how we intellectualize, <laughs> and how we we have favored rationalism and and the academic approach to these traditions in comparing and analyzing and looking at and talking about, but the heart that has deep humility and recognition that that this tradition has transformed and transforms people. I, I just, I think it's a different approach. There's like a, 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 a humility there, a, a recognition of there is something deeply profound mm -hmm. and sacred, and that it's a particular note, and this tradition is a different note, and that all the notes can come together and create a chord, but all those notes need to be there and are valid lovely, in and of themselves. Lovely, lovely. You know, and I don't mention it, I've had people come up and say, well, you think you're the first ones to discover this? Mm. We did this in our native religion way back when. Well, now you can't have it both ways, all right? Do you want me to name it and recognize that this comes out of the collective unconscious in nation after nation, ethnicity, age, and, and religion, so uh, we're caught in a double bind. We want to be given credit and recognize that we were part of that perennial tradition. And then when we do, some people are offended. So it's the style, the energy, the respect 
that you do it with, I think. Um, I know we're at time, but I think this is, it gets at your teaching on unity and diversity. And that when we're talking about the perennial tradition, it's not to flatten or mm-hmm. paint everything over with mm-hmm. our view of it, but it's to, to recognize there's an, an essential unity in the differentiation. Well put. Hi, Father Richard. I want to start by saying how much I've appreciated your work, and this podcast has been so helpful for me to better understanding the concepts in the universal Christ. This is such an important and necessary work. I have a question about Nestorianism. I was listening to Brad Jursak, who also really admires your work, and he made mention that you both make similar points but use different approaches when explaining the cosmic Christ. I'm more familiar with your work than Brad's, but I feel I need some clarification. Brad's approach doesn't delineate between Jesus and Christ. He argues that Jesus is the Christ, the Word made flesh, and that this follows more closely to the teachings of John's Gospel and his first letter. Separating the two seems to tread close to Nestorianism or adoptionism, but I know that you are much more careful than that. You both land on the premise that the scope of God's love is always wider, bigger, and always more inclusive, but you take different approaches to get there. However, I fear many of your readers might not get that message because of your approach, and I even know a couple of people who love your book who are saying things like, the historical Jesus of Nazareth is optional and it wouldn't matter if he had actually lived. Can you address this and explain why the historical Jesus is still very important? Yeah, I'll try. Um, And again, I'm a human being living in time. I don't know that I'm expressing it perfectly, uh, but I still think the distinction is important to make. You know, we say philosophically, you have to distinguish things before you can unite them. When you unite them, Uh, you have uniformity instead of unity. Unity is uniting two different things and uh, making them defer to one another, draw on one another. So I I do think, uh, that's of course why I wrote the book, that making this distinction just clarifies a whole bunch of things, particularly chronologically for a lot of people. Once they think of history being empty of God for 13.6 billion years, uh, we've got to solve that problem for people. And if God only started showing himself in Jesus, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, for me, it's an incoherent universe in terms of our relationship to the divine. But um, what else could I say that might be helpful to you? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure I, I walk the edge of of heresy. I gotta confess to you, I can't remember what Nestorianism taught. What it was, <laughs> I should know. What is it? Was that the? Well, here's my. I should know this too. Is that, is that that uh, that Jesus and the Christ were were separate? Were separate? Where it was not. Um, in the the almost like a separation of the incarnation where took, it took the incarnation out of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh. We'll, we'll definitely follow up on checking on this before we yeah. add this. Yeah. But we're not taking incarnation out of either one. No. In fact, quite the quite the opposite. Yeah. But we'll look up our definition of of Nestorianism. Um, the two Protestants here understood it better than I did. Um, 
Yeah, I hope that's some kind of answer. Forgive me for my confusion. It's a question that we've gotten multiple times. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's a question that, because I think people, there's a concern that making the distinction between Jesus and Christ, particularly for the evangelicals, they get, they think that it's taken away from, from Jesus yes. and his importance. And I think that is not at all what you're saying. So in a sense, that was uh, part of why I wanted to include it was to be able just to say like, Richard, Are we still recording? Because I think we need to say this. Yeah, because I, I, I think, Richard, like your, your whole point, you, you are, are in some ways through this book, to me, uplifting the incarnation in a way that I hadn't cherished so well before. Like the way that you speak of the Christ-soaked world, the way that uh, Jesus participates in that, to me, it, it gave me such a, a deeper sense of how Jesus participates as the Son of God yeah. and not splitting Jesus into two. Well, and it gives us the the person to fall in love with the universal. Yeah, that's right. Without that, for me, is the key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without yeah. the concrete person of Jesus, we wouldn't know what the personality of the Christ is or how it shows up in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the other part that I think is so moving to me is that then we also get to participate in that. We also get to incarnate. Yeah. We get. We get to hopefully. I mean, we get to facilitate that flow of God's participation in the world as us. So it it expands the incarnation. It doesn't it doesn't deny it, it doesn't take it away. Mm -hmm. I think it it just expands it through that point mm -hmm. into all reality. And, mm -hmm. and it's why the circle of Jesus is so important, right? Like right. here's a way. Here is how Jesus emulated or and modeled and lived in a way that we can that we can emulate, I'm sorry, that a way that we can follow right. yeah. in the way as people of the way. And it it really, to me, it just expands the importance of the historical Jesus uh, yes. that I didn't have before. Uh, that's my hope, yeah. and that's my desire. Thank you for answering the question for me better than I could. <laughs> uh, what else might I want to say there? Um, you know, that is one reason I put that rather extended prayer before the crucified Christ to know that it has to become that personal, that intimate, that devoted to Jesus and Jesus crucified, or the bigger metaphysical message becomes way too abstract and sort of unlovable. It's just observable, intellectually approvable, but Jesus makes the whole thing lovable, and that's where we're headed. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. 
Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.